This morning we have four scripture readings in our lectionary uh, readings for today. And so, you know, last week we had something of, of a different sermon. We kind of had four stories um, that, with a bit of commentary included uh, that related to Psalm 65. So we have one, one text and kind of four illustrations of that text. But this morning we're, we got four different big passages, but I really, they, they, they come together very nicely, and they also seem to tie in as sometimes these, I guess God is wont to do, uh, gathering in some of the things we've been talking about for the last few weeks and even a couple months and, uh, and bringing those themes back before us again. And so rather than reading all the scriptures at once, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read one of the passages and then um, we'll, we'll explore that a little bit and then come to the next passage because it does flow nicely. So as we, uh, as we move into God's, this time with God's word, I want to invite you to bow your heads and let us pray together. <clears throat> o Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We come before you now, Lord Jesus, asking that you would do what only you can do. Take us from the place where we are to the places that you would have us to be. We offer you our lives and our attention as we gather now around this precious gift that is your word. It is in Christ that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so our first scripture reading this morning comes from the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, it is chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So I invite you to turn there with me uh, and to listen carefully and well. For this too is the word of the Lord. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not righteous within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> a little on the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk was a prophet who prophesied um, in the years kind of 640 to 615. He prophesied, so this is before Christ, this is Old Testament. He prophesied uh, after Assyria had come and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. So Habakkuk is, is, is prophesying proclaiming God's word to the people in a time when things are not as they ought to be. 
in a time of upheaval, in a time when the world seems to be coming undone, when God's people have been put to death in many instances, killed in many instances, taken far from home in other instances. They know exile. He's crying out in the face of what Assyria has done in this place. But he's also prophesying in this unique place before Babylon, as it grows as an empire, comes in, conquers Assyria and the northern kingdom and also the southern kingdom of Judah. So Habakkuk is right here in between God's kingdom basically being demolished, torn apart, pulled asunder, and uh, it's a difficult moment. It is also before that time when eventually Persia will rise up as the great power in that part of the world and conquer Babylon. But also Cyrus the king chooses to restore Israel back to the land of promise to rebuild the temple, and all these things unfold over a number of centuries. Habakkuk is living. Now maybe you understand uh, Habakkuk's complaint to the Lord. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry violence and you will not save? He lived in a difficult moment in history, and this book as a whole has sort of a driving question behind it. If we sort of condense this down, can't really do that. If you try to put one question that he's addressing here, it is this. How can God use a wicked nation like Babylon or like Assyria, uh, who worship other gods, who are, who are pagan, who worship false gods, who are very extremely violent in their culture and society, how can God use these wicked nations for his purpose? How does that actually happen? And the response that he gets here the answer to it that you can find in this book is this, that ultimately God will judge all of the nations, Syria, Babylon, Persia, Israel. God is the ultimate judge before whom every person and every nation will come to stand. That God gets the last word here. And so in God's sovereignty, certain things play out and unfold within history that he works together in the end according to his purpose, so that his purpose, his ultimate plans are not thwarted. Many cry out, not just then, but right now, oh Lord, how long? We see fractious you know, circumstances in the world. We see difficult circumstances in our own society. We, people, we see people crying out, from a continent away or within our own society, how long will we cry violence and you will not save? So it's not, an, uh, uh, it is a pertinent question, right, that Habakkuk asks in 640 B.C. Uh, we, you know, we tend to think that there's like this time where things are all good and that these, these times are sort of unusual, the times in which we live or Habakkuk lived or Isaiah lived as we shall come to see but the world is always like this. the world is like this and so we cry out but we also come to understand that God is the one who ultimately has judgment and final say and because of this because God answers his cry with remember that God's judgment will come even when it looks like it's going to delay even when it looks like it's slow to appear God says it will show up even when we feel like attending to these things, when we'd like for God to show up, when we'd like God to make things right, when we'd like all this to happen, 
God says, I have a different task for you. Judgment is unto the Lord. And your task as the people of God is this. It was in the last line that we read. The righteous shall live by faith. God will judge. God will decide how all this works out in history. Your task is to live by faith. We've been talking about that, haven't we? We memorized a passage in church about six weeks ago. Remember it? And the apostle said to the Lord, actually it's last week. Come on, come on now. Increase our faith. That's right. Increase our faith. We've been thinking about faith. Faith as it appears here in our heads. There is content to the scriptures. When's the last time you read Habakkuk? It's been a while for me, right? There's, there, God has given us things that God desires us for, for us to know and to learn and to understand. It is here. And so in order to increase our faith, has been our prayer, we need to continue to attend to these things, to learn God's Word, to study it, try to understand what has God revealed to us about Himself and the world and our place within it. But if we stop there, if the content stops in our head, we haven't increased our faith enough. You have to go beyond just thinking the right thing to living it. It's the struggle to embody that which God has given us to know and to be and to become. And so we seek to embody that knowledge. We seek to live it out in our lives and our lives together. But if we do that, seeking that increase of faith, ultimately we will realize how, how frequently we are not righteous, how frequently we don't live by faith, how frequently we want to manipulate the world to our own end so that it works out exactly how we see fit. And when we see that in ourselves, the next stage of an increase in faith becomes most apparent. <coughs> Remember this? It's when we give ourselves, all of ourselves, over to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of our hopes and dreams and our ideas about what right judgment looks like and how God ought to handle circumstances in history, we give that all over to the Lord Jesus who has come for us for that specific purpose so that Jesus can stand in for us. The righteous one. The faithful one. The one who loves perfectly. Who can see all of the different ways that the world fits together. It's just something we can't do. And who has promised that He will work these things out together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We trust. That's that increase of faith that's perhaps the most hardest, but it the most difficult, but is also the most freeing. That's the gospel, when you just give everything to the Lord Jesus. Habakkuk's talking about faith in the midst of a topsy-turvy world where things seem confusing and at and it odds with one another. Increase our faith. That's our prayer as a church. Increase our faith. The next passage comes to us from another prophet, the prophet Isaiah. Um, uh, the passage is chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. I invite you to listen carefully and listen well. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. 
Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of hearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Habakkuk helps us to see that there's sin in the world. Civilizational shifts and changes and wars and rumors of wars. We the righteous are called to live by faith. Isaiah says, yes, sin in the world is really easy to see. And most of us are pretty decent at pointing it out where everything else has gone wrong. Isaiah says what God wants you to see is the sin in your own life. There's a pretty drastic difference between those two things. Isaiah prophesied years kind of 740 to 700 B.C. So even longer ago than the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, Isaiah prophesied as the shadow of Assyria was beginning to loom and to rise and to cast its darkness over the land. This was before Assyria came and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. Isaiah prophesies that this is coming. He also speaks to the fact that Babylon will come in afterwards and conquer both the northern and the southern kingdom. And he also speaks to the fact that Cyrus and Persia are going to come back and eventually the people of God will be restored to the land. And the end of Isaiah is this beautiful passage of a renewed creation and God setting things right. But here at the very onset to this book, which is sometimes called the fifth gospel because it speaks so much of Jesus, he shows us that God wants us to see the sin in our own lives. And in fact, judgment comes for that fact, for that reason. Um, even as he speaks of restoration and judgment and how those play out, Isaiah also has these passages about a suffering servant who will come and be the agent of our redemption and of our salvation. Sin in the world, easy to see. Sin in our own hearts, harder to see. He says something like this. Isaiah does. God says through him. God says, you pray. You come to worship. You offer incense and prayers. And here's one that ought to get our attention this morning. You tithe. Right? All these sacrifices were tithes, in fact. They, you know, sometimes they would give money and coins, but th this, is, this is a tithe that they were offering. And in those days, there were three tithes that were given. So 30% was the expectation. So we're, we're talking about a single tithe, typically it's sort of a goal in the church. But in those days, there were, it was both tithes and taxes together um, in, that, in that 
day and culture. But we see that God is saying, you're tithing, but you come with a heart that is not right. So I don't even want them. It's not like God needs our money. That is not the point of, of giving. That's not why God asks us to give. God doesn't need our money or our stuff or our things or our bulls or our lambs or the blood of sacrifice or any. God doesn't need these things, right? And so as we come to this passage, and we're thinking about Consecration Sunday in a couple weeks, um, God sees not the amount that we place in the plate. That, that's almost irrelevant. Um, God sees our hearts as we give. In fact, Jesus tells a story about a widow who comes and places just a mite. It's like a part of a penny, part of a part of a penny in the plate. And Jesus says, this woman has given more than all the rest of these folks who have come and placed money uh, in the collection today because she gave in faith and she gave uh, the last bit that she had. So God sees not how much. God sees our hearts as we give. And God sees our hearts as we worship today and gives, sees our hearts as we offer prayers and the invitation is to live by faith. Yes, as the prophet Habakkuk says, but we also see this, this command by God to wash ourselves, to be cleansed, to cease to do evil, to start to do good, to seek justice and correct oppression and care for the widowed and the fatherless. It's easy to see sin in the world out there and then say, I'm going to live by faith well, living by faith is also about striving to correct our own hearts, to be washed clean by the washing of the word and also by the waters of baptism. With that comes a promise. God says, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they will be like wool. It's a promise that when we come to God, with repentant hearts, seeking to be made new, God honors that, and God will be at work to make us um, whole and to give us a share in Him. Habakkuk talks about faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Hear, hear, and in surrender. Isaiah says, as you live by faith, be cleansed, be washed, be made new. It's a picture of baptism. The apostle writes... In the gospel, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, he gives us an example of somebody who does what God is asking to live a repentant life. If you want to see what that looks like, here it is. It's the story of Zacchaeus. And if you were here at the beginning of worship, you've already prayed that you would be like Zacchaeus, that we together would be like him, inviting the Lord into our homes and being made new. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. 
Zacchaeus and stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Again, faith and baptism being made new. Zacchaeus is an example of what that looks like. If you want it concretely, here it is in a person. Zacchaeus turns from evil. He's a tax collector. He'd been cheating people. He'd been pursuing and acquiring and getting and defrauding. But in this instance, we see him turning from evil because none of that satisfied him. Ultimately, he was still seeking, the passage said. He was seeking. Specifically, he was seeking Jesus. He wanted to see who he was. There's something left unsatisfied within him. He was seeking Jesus. So he goes and he climbs a tree and he looks for Jesus. He gets to the highest place he can. This is like in some symbolic way, Zacchaeus trying to be the best version of himself he can as he looks for Christ. But the beauty of this passage shows us that even as we look for the Lord, Christ is already coming to us and calling us by name and inviting himself into our homes. He says, come down out of that tree. With all your striving and climbing and reaching and grabbing and trying to be, come, come down out of that tree and just bring me home with you. Zacchaeus does this. He welcomes Jesus into his home. He seeks Christ and he's found by him. He invites him into his life. And we don't, we're not privy to the conversation that happens, but the first thing that Zacchaeus says <clears throat> is that I've given half of everything I own to the poor and anything that I've defrauded uh, of another person, I've restored it times four. His life has changed. That which is unrighteous in him is now being set right by Jesus. He's being washed clean. He's living in a way that is true by faith in the person and in the way of Jesus. You see the progression. There's sin in the world out there. We know it. Live by faith. Here, here, here. As we surrender to Jesus, we're washed clean by him. He changes us. He changes our hearts and our lives, our orientation, all manner of things. Zacchaeus gives us an example. But if you want to see what this looks like together, let's look at 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, verses 1 through 4 and then 11 and 12. This is an example of a whole church full of Zacchaeuses. I said this morning it sounds like that should be like Zacchaei in the plural, but it's Zacchaeus's. So here it is. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all the afflictions that you're enduring. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power 
so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here it is. It's an example of what happens when a single person like Zacchaeus comes and offers himself to the Lord, forsakes judgment of everything else and everyone else and all other things, and says, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Wash me. Make me new. Help me live for you and through you and towards you and with you. So what happens when a single person does that and then another? And then another? And then Christ gathers another. And Jesus pulls in another and a family here and there. And we all suddenly, well, we're the church together. Paul gives thanks for two things here. He says, we ought always give thanks because I see two things in you. First, that your faith is increasing. That's what we've been talking about for six weeks now, right? And guess what? I'm in this unique, really blessed position where I get to have conversations with many of you throughout the week and throughout the weeks to see how you're wrestling with these things. Like God and Jacob by the river. I get to have conversations. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I think God's doing. Here's what I'm trying to change. Here's what's doing, what I'm doing differently. Here's where that's hard and difficult. And here's where I'm seeing God show up. And I get to have those. I, I see this in us and in you that our faith in this congregation is increasing. And that is something for which, like Paul says, we ought always to give thanks. I'm thankful. If you leave today, give thanks. God's at work. He's growing our faith. But there's a second reason that Paul said we ought always to give thanks for this church here and I think our church right now. He says that the love of every one of you for one another is increasing, is growing abundantly. And I've said this to a bunch of people in the last few months. I think I, even before knowing this passage was ahead of us, I see that happening over and over among different people at different times. Sometimes it looks like a train ride through the Doe River Gorge while the leaves are in full, you know, fire. Sometimes it looks like a hayride at the Smith House where people walk away with pumpkins too big to carry. Sometimes that looks like conversations that happen after church. I don't know if you've noticed, but those are getting longer and longer and longer. Sometimes that looks like family night suppers like Wednesday that turn into game nights and people just stay for longer than they've ever stayed. That's because love's growing among you. Every one of you for one another, it's happening. Sometimes that looks like meals being made for tired parents of newborns. Sometimes that looks like prayers lifted for those who are sick and those who are facing surgery. Sometimes that looks like sharing time in each other's homes as has happened a lot over the summer. The list could literally go on and on and on and on. You're growing in faith, and the love that each one of you has for one another is also increasing abundantly. This is what the church is meant to be. Even in the face of sin, whether we see that sin in the world out there or in our own hearts, a community of Zacchaeuses. That's who we are. A people growing in faith, whether that's placing our last mite in the plate or climbing high as we can to catch a glimpse of Jesus or having the courage to surrender to him everything, a people growing in faith and a people growing in love.
Paul says this is how the name of Jesus, that judge who suffers for our redemption, this is how that Jesus is glorified in us and us in him. So says Paul. So your task, ours together, is to grow in faith and to grow in love to the glory of Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.